0: Our Wednesday night group has been just great lately. We we uh, started um, talking through the prophet, and I mentioned this a couple weekends ago or Sundays ago when uh, when I was speaking. I was actually that was Jeanette's last um, Sunday, and we kind of did this little inline thing. But the uh, going through the book study of the prophet has been just engendering all sorts of great discussion and great points that have their connection and their mirrors Scripture, of course, which is the whole reason we do it. Uh, (laughs) I remember um, when I was uh, coming up in leadership at at an evangelical church up the freeway a little bit, and uh, I had the temerity to read uh, from the prophet uh, on a Sunday morning, I was pulled aside at the end and reprimanded and said, we don't do that here. So, why? And, and if we don't do that there, then why do we do it here? Well, we're not them, first of all. But secondly is that um, Khalil Gibran is, uh, was a Lebanese national. Actually, it wasn't even Lebanon when he was born. It was still under the Turkish Empire. But he was schooled in Christianity. A priest taught him as a child. He was also taught in Islam, and he, was, he studied you know, all the world's religions. And so his poetry... His uh, wisdom comes from many different streams. But what you find is is that if you're really approaching the truth, it always looks like Jesus. You know? And so his words and his way of looking at these particular issues have a lot to say about what Jesus said and can help us to illustrate and illuminate what Jesus was trying to say, in ways that we miss because the scriptures are so familiar. I do this a lot, and I, you know, I always got in trouble for it if I quoted Lao Tzu or Chuang Tzu from the Taoist tradition or, or someone else, because I was always trying to find ways to make Jesus' words sing again. I saw the connection between the two of them, but when I read it in this other point of view, translated from a different language, it would hit me in the face again in ways that I had learned to become familiar and familiarity breeding contempt in terms of how much I had become familiar with the scriptures. And so trying to bring Jesus' words alive again is the whole reason we do this. And what I wanted to do was, at least on certain Sundays, is to Kind of draft after the, the Wednesday night and use some of the material there and some of the discussion points that we talked about and bring them up here again in a way that hopefully we can all kind of crystallize and, and, and come to understand a deeper way of what Jesus is trying to tell us. And... Um, Two weeks ago, it was love. We talked about love. Uh, I guess, you know, to to set up the prophet for you, for those who don't know, how many are not familiar with the prophet, the book, The Prophet? Okay. So it is a very slim volume of prose poetry. The idea is, is that Al-Mustafa is this fictional prophet who was marooned for 12 years on a distant shore in a city and uh, waiting all the while for his ship to come back that will take him home, but living among the people there, but sort of offline kind of in a in a hermit like state always trying to glean as as much as he can of life and God around him. And the people came to recognize him and cherish him as a wise man among them. And so when his ship finally comes back and he is heading down the hill to go to the docks, um, the people come out of the fields and come out of their threshing floors and come out of their homes um, to intercept him and plead with him to stay. And when he gets to the city center, the, the priestess, the seer, comes out of the temple and and talks to him and understands why he has to leave and gives him permission, of course, to go. But she says, before you do, will you please give us your wisdom, you know, impart it to us so that we can teach it to our children. And this is what he does. And so the whole rest of the book is their questions on specific topics and his answers, some of which are only a page long, maybe a page and a half. It's it's short and sweet, but it is packed with information. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about love. And what we find is that every time that, um, one of these subjects is broached. It comes at us from completely out of left field. It's so counterintuitive. It, it, it just slaps us upside the head because we think we know something about love. We think we know something about marriage and children and giving, which were the first four chapters. And this comes back at us in a way that just kind of makes our head go like a cocker spaniel, you know? It just tweaks you, which is what Jesus is doing all the time. You know, if you think about it, from wherever you stand, whatever position intellectually you stake out, Jesus will always be somewhere else. Always. Why? Because you're always wrong? (laughs) Well, to a certain degree, that's true. How can we ever be totally right? But the most important thing is, is that as soon as we have staked out ground and made it a static belief, then it's not living anymore. Now we're looking for the living among the dead. The static is the dead. Jesus is always calling us to a new place, a new growth, even if what we have come to believe and become convinced of has served us well for a period of time. Jesus knows that the next growth spurt is coming from someplace else and someplace else and someplace else. So whenever you ask a question of Jesus, what he comes back at you is counterintuitive. It hits you upside of the face. If we haven't gotten so familiar that we think we understand what he's trying to tell us, and so, as it was with love, we think we know something about love, but what we know about love is usually Hallmark greeting card kind of love. You know, it's, it's movie romantic love. It's what we feel in these things that we think we know culturally about love. And when Khalil comes back to us and says, love is going to be difficult. Love is not for the faint-hearted. Love is something that will wound you. Love is something that will shake you to your roots. Because the second point is that love is a transformative process. It's not an emotion, it's not an event, it's a process that we go through. And there are the images that he gives us of this even violent removal of any impurity, anything that stands in the way of us being able to stand directly before our God and see what is present to us. He talks about the fact that love is a complete and perfect unity of both pleasure and pain but that it has to be swallowed whole. We can't pick out the parts we want and leave the others. Anyway, he says you can do that if you want to do that, but if so, then you know, get off the bus if you didn't sign up for this ride, because this ride is going to take you places that you don't necessarily want to go. It has to be swallowed whole. And if you don't, if you try to just take the, the good parts of love as you understand them without the others, then... The way he puts it is, you will move into the seasonless places where you will laugh, but not all your laughter, and you will weep, but not all your tears. In other words, we will never hit what it really means to be a full human being. And the last point he makes about love is so important, that everything about love happens right now. Love is simultaneous in the sense that it is only contained in the moment that we're in. Love has no agenda that extends beyond this moment. Love is its own reward and its own outcome. It is only concerned with the nature of the connection that we're in. And anything else that we lay on top of that is something that comes out of our own desires, comes out of our own egoic imaginations, right? And so these points are taking us into a very different place in terms of love. This is a full-throated love. This is a mature love. This is, <laughs> how do we put it? Not, not, not your uh, mom's version of love? No, there was that wasn't right. Mom's version of love is probably the closest to this kind of love. It's a love that flies in the face of our cultural understanding of love. And this is what he's trying to get across. If we really want to accept everything that love is, it's going to take us for this ride that's going to hurt us, but it's going to transform us and purify us and take us to places that we never even thought was available. And so this mature love is really a balance of opposites, if you think about it. Someone called God, uh, and I can't remember it was, it was a Jewish rabbi, called God the coincidence of opposites. I love that. The coincidence of opposites. And so it's all of this stuff brought in that we normally see as separate pieces all into this unity. And so this love is that balance or this coincidence of opposites. Sometimes the, in, in, the, in the Christian tradition, it's called the third way. So if there's right and the left, right down the middle, bringing the extremes to this vibrant center is the correct way, the way that will bring us the closest to this truth that will make us free. And so this is what's happening here. Those opposites, that pleasure and pain that we see as polar opposites, is coming into a third way. And what we're doing is we're taking the ideals and we're matching them up and linking them up to the practical. We need to have both. We need to have ideals, but we need to be practical at the same time. I mean, think about it. Without our ideals, without this, this pure understanding of love or marriage or children or whatever it happens to be, right? We are going to lose a sense of the sacred. We are going to lose the sense of a deeper meaning or a hope embedded in that experience of life. But if we take away the practical, then we're going to lose our grounding in common sense, aren't we? We're going, to, we're going to risk moving into this saccharine sort of platitude kind of description of love or marriage or whatever and, and not be able to really live this thing at the ground level where Jesus lives. Jesus is always at the ground level. Have you heard the expression, someone is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? It's like that. You know, we can get so high and um, far, up into the platitudes, into these these ideals, these abstract ideas, that it doesn't jive anymore. Back in the 70s, there was a movie, and I remember the, the tagline, very famous tagline, if any of you remember it, is that love means never having to say you're sorry. Y'all you remember that? How many agree with that, by the way? Anyone agree with that? Love means never having to say you're sorry? You know? no takers not even a one (laughs) Uh, Frank is saying love means frequently having to say you're sorry (laughs) well we all know the, the reality of it right We all know that we're constantly hurting each other, and the more that we are intimate, the more that we're close over a longer period of time, the more chances you have to mess up and have to say you're sorry. But love means never having to say you're sorry. Okay, where is that even going? and Why was that such a big deal in the 70s and for at least a few decades afterwards? Well, you know, it's pointing to something that's actually quite beautiful. It's pointing to a sense of unconditional forgiveness. And we talked about that in here. You know, God doesn't really forgive us. God is forgiveness. And so in a very real way, if you want to get, you know, lofty about it. Oh, I love that sound. Erin's here with her baby. That's beautiful. Oh, look at that Gerber boy. Girl. Boy. Yeah, see, blue. I had a 50-50 shot. And so uh, where the heck was I? I had totally lost my place here. This doesn't mean... frequently having to say, "You're sorry, I, I'm so sorry, guys. I lost my place. <laughs> Those eyes just took it all out of me. It's pointing to this idea that, yes, there is, in, in unconditional love, there is unconditional forgiveness, and truly, you are forgiven as soon as you turn and face the beholden again, the, the beloved again. right? That's the ideal. But we all know that if you try to go through a marriage or any kind of long-term committed relationship without ever saying you're sorry, yeah, you're moving into some kind of, I don't know, oblivious narcissism or something that you never really understand that you're culpable at times and that asking for and receiving that connection again of forgiveness as spoken as an apology or amends received I mean, we all know that that is absolutely essential in human relationships. And yet, the ideal still really does exist. You don't really have to say you're sorry, at least not to God, in in truly unconditional love. But it sure helps on the practical level. Here is the melding of the ideal and the practical. This is what Jesus is always about. And always doing, if you really analyze what he's talking about and how he's teaching, you see this over and over again. And so the same thing is happening here in the prophet, which is mirroring these New Testament ideals, right? So the next question after love was about marriage. Makes sense, because the one after that is about children. So we're really talking here about how does love that we've already tried to understand here, how does it play out in these most intimate and committed relationships that we experience as human beings? So there, there's, a, there's a flow to it. Now, Marion, as I told her what we were going to talk about this morning, she says, now you remember, some people are not married. And so is this going to still apply to them? And it's just like, absolutely. Even if you're not married, even if you don't want to be married, the thing is, is that these principles are going to apply to any long-term committed relationship a friendship, a family member, a spouse. It's still going to apply, but it is most clearly understood within the context of marriage. All right? But I just want to... So wherever you are in life, as you're hearing these things, put them into your life situation. Put them in the context of the closest, most committed relationships that you have and are experiencing at the time. So let's let's read... Let's see, what, what is this little poem, this little short poem? It, it won't go up on the screens, but it is in your handouts if you want to follow along. Or just close your eyes and listen. You were born together, and together you shall be forevermore. You shall be together when the white wings of death scatter your days. Aye, you shall be together even in the silent memory of God. But let there be spaces in your togetherness, and let the winds of the heavens dance between you. Love one another, but make not a bond of love. Let it rather be a moving sea between the shores of your souls. Fill each other's cup, but drink not from one cup. Give one another of your bread, but eat not from the same loaf. Sing and dance together and be joyous, but let each one of you be alone even as the strings of a lute are alone, though they quiver with the same music. Give your hearts, but not into each other's keeping, for only the hand of life can contain your hearts. And stand together, yet not too near together, for the pillars of the temple stand apart, and the oak tree and the cypress grow not in each other's shadow. Okay. Anyone offended? Anyone at least a little bit tweaked? Thinking in different directions? All right? I hope that you are. I hope that this has hit something that you hadn't quite thought of before. Or either flew in the face, maybe, of what you think that love is supposed to be. Maybe there was a line, you know, I think it was Sharon, or, or it was, uh, maybe it was Candace, who went when they said, you know, Make not a bond of love. That was you, I think. That really stuck in their craw. What do you mean make not a bond of love? Isn't it supposed to be a bond? You know. Now I think in this context he's talking about the way we would understand a bond for a bond slave or a bond servant, You know, an oppressive kind of thing. But there is so much here that is counterintuitive to the way that we normally look at marriage and understand marriage to be. It's taking us in new directions. Now we don't have to agree you know, this is a poet speaking, and he's taking poetic license. We don't have to agree, but hopefully, we will consider what it is he's trying to say. And let's back up and let's read that first stanza again, because he's giving us the ideal here right off the bat. Right? You were born together, and together you shall be forevermore. Now, what does that even mean? You were born together. See, this is where we have to kind of look through the the poetic, you know, um, imagery a little bit. I don't really know what he means. He could mean he could be talking about the pre existence of souls. You have all heard of that? That we existed before this life and we choose this life, we choose where we're going to. I don't know if he's talking about that. Maybe, you know. He could be talking about the fact that we've talked about so many times that each one of us is connected. And we're all connected to all creation in a way that there really is just one unity, even though it has the appearance, maybe even just the illusion of Diversity and separate form and function. But there is a oneness at the core of this. This is what Jesus was trying to get across. I and the Father are one, was his statement of true identity. But perhaps he just simply means that on your wedding day, at the moment that you commit to each other, you are born again into a new type of relationship, a oneness. That's the simplest, most straightforward way. So... At the moment of your betrothal, at the moment of your wedding, when you finally commit to someone truly, you were born together, and together you shall be forevermore. You shall be together when the white wings of death scatter your days. Aye, you shall be together even in the silent memory of God. Beautiful, beautiful statement of the the lifelong commitment that marriage is supposed to be. Now, how does that stack up to marriage as we know it and understand it in the real world? where the divorce rate is 50%. You know, as a counselor, I see marriages from the inside out often. And even the best ones obviously have their problems. But there are so many that are not even close to best, even if they're still staying together. And we know the realities. We've felt the realities of trying to stay in a committed relationship with someone, even if it's not necessarily a traditional marriage relationship. And so how do we deal with this? How do we connect all this? This is the ideal that he's giving us. But without the ideal, even though we know that marriages don't live up to this ideal, without holding on to the ideal, what do we really have anymore? Is it just a contract? Just a legal binding contract? Is it just a social device that allows us to be able to raise children in a stable environment. What do we have without this ideal, without this beautiful understanding of a spiritual as well as physical commitment that we're making? But with only the ideal, if we're not bringing in the real world, what do we have? Well, we got a recipe for cynicism and bitterness, don't we? From all the unmet expectations, that are going to flow from someone moving into a marriage situation without understanding the balance, the reality of the nature of human relationships. And so, you know, we could really help our young people, actually anybody going into marriage, by trying to present a more balanced look at what marriage is all about. What do human relationships look like? And Jesus is just doing exactly this at Matthew 19 and a question that he's asked on marriage and divorce and remarriage. He takes this balanced approach that is a little bit mind-bending, but the problem is is that we have taken his balanced teaching and then misinterpreted it based on what we think we understood about those words in in English or in Greek, and then turned it into another ideal that actually has become abusive. And this is something that, that I felt... I mean, it was slammed in the face with it about 30 years ago, this teaching of Jesus. Why don't we read it, and let's see how Jesus threads this particular needle. At Matthew 19, starting at verse 3, Some Pharisees came to Jesus and testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Hang on to that, for any reason at all. That's an important phrase. And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God has joined together. Let no man separate. So here are the Pharisees coming to Jesus with a very specific, narrow, legal question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? We'll talk about that in a second. What does Jesus do? He immediately reverts to the ideal. He knows where they're going, he knows what they're about. He knows what they're trying to accomplish in, in trying to test him with this legal question. But he pulls back out and he says, This is the way it's supposed to be. You're thinking legally. It's not about the legality. It is about this blending of of flesh and spirit, into one thing. And this beautiful idea that he quotes right out of Genesis to them. But of course, they're not having it. And so they say back to him, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of hearts. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And his disciples freak out. And they say, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, then it's better not to marry. What the heck? What's going on here? Is Jesus really flying in the face of everything that his contemporaries understood about marriage and divorce and adultery? Not to mention what we think we understand. Or is he saying something that is perfectly commonsensical and balanced? And of course he's balanced. The trouble is we don't understand the context anymore. And this gets really technical really quick, but let me see if I can just quickly give you the highlights of what's going on here. Uh. At the time that Jesus comes on the scene, there was a generational debate that had been go- going on for several generations between two schools of Pharisees, the Hillelites under Hillel and the Shamites under Shammai. They were trying to understand marriage and divorce. One was a progressive, the, the Hillelites were very progressive, very liberal, and the Shammites were conservative, so we have that age-old battle between the two, right? Um... The Hillelites and the Shamites were both looking at a verse out of Exodus. Uh, I'm sorry, out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24, I believe. And it had to do not with divorce. You know that there's nowhere in the Bible that talks about divorce in terms of what the actual legality is and how it's performed. This is a glancing blow. You know, this was actually taught as a, as a chapter, a verse that was talking about a man who divorces his wife and she marries another He can't remarry her. That was really the whole point of this passage. But because it talked about divorce, they extracted out of it what they thought they understood. So when a man puts away his wife, gives her a certificate of divorce... For a matter of indecency, that was the way it directly translates, ervat davar in, in Hebrew. And, and ervat er, erva literally means nakedness in the sense of being exposed. And so this idea of a matter of nakedness, a matter of indecency, a matter of exposure is used throughout the Old Testament in various ways that have nothing to do with adultery. But we have translated it pretty much as adultery, you know, singularly. But it was anything that polluted the camp. It was anything that brought shame to the nation, to the camp, to the family. And so if the woman brings any kind of shame to the family, Ravat Devar, a matter of indecency, then the man could put her away, give her a certificate of divorce. Now what the Hillelites did was to take those two words, Ravat Devar, and split them and say they were two separate issues. (laughs) It was indecency, some sort of impropriety, in any matter at all. And so they reckoned that a man could put his wife away for any reason at all, even if she just spoiled his dinner. So what does this translate to in the first century when Jesus is teaching? There was a growing trend of more and more divorce because even if a man just wanted a younger woman, all he had to do was go to a Hillelite judge and get the decision that he wanted. And then he could put the old wife away and... Get on with the new. And so the Pharisees are asking, is that what you agree with? Is this what the law is actually saying? Now, the Shamites on the other side, no, it's not two separate things. It's one thing. It's a matter of indecency, a matter of shaming. But in all of this, it was always understood that there were five reasons for divorce that the Old Testament gave. One of them you're really not going to like because it's infertility. And it's always the woman's fault in the Old Testament. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it goes. So... Because God said, be fruitful and multiply. If you didn't do that, then a man could divorce and get someone who could. Unless he couldn't. And uh, I, I don't know what that would work out to be. And then, so there's, there's a infertility. There's this matter of indecency. If you bring shame upon, which could include adultery, of course. And then there was another passage that really had to do with how you treated slaves. Father, thank you for each and every relationship that we have in our lives. Even the ones that are difficult, even the ones that are trying, thank you for those relationships. Show us more and more how to heal those relationships. Show us more and more how not to be the hard-hearted ones. That if there can't be the kind of relationship we like, at least we are still trying to bridge that gap in whatever way is appropriate. But thank you, Lord, for these relationships. Help us to value them and understand how much they define our lives so that we will seek them out and we will treat them with every bit of respect and love that they deserve. And starting with your relationship with us, Father, thank you again for that perfect relationship and that perfect model. And for these words from our scriptures and from our poets that help us to understand and get a glimpse of what it is that we're really doing in relationship with you. So thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for never leaving or or, or, or forgetting us in everything that we do. And we can only love because you loved us first. Never let us forget that as well. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's all stand.